This is Guns and Butter. I think concretely also we, we understood that poverty was not the result of a scarcity of resources because this was an oil-producing economy. But all the, the oil revenues were going into private hands. Of course, the, the big oil U.S. was behind it. But um, what we understood was that it was the, the governments which were responsible for poverty. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michel Chosarovsky. Today's show, Venezuela, from oil proxy to the Bolivarian movement and sabotage. Michel Chosarovsky is an economist and founder, director, and editor of the Center for Research on Globalization based in Montreal, Quebec. He is the author of 11 books, including The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order. War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, and America's War on Terrorism. Today we discuss the economic and political crisis in Venezuela, its history as an oil proxy nation since the discovery of oil in 1918, through successive dictatorships, the Chavista movement, and destabilization, with a special emphasis on Michel Chosarovsky's personal experience there, conducting a study on poverty as advisor to the Minister of Planning. Michel Chosodovsky, welcome. I'm delighted again to be on the Guns and Butter. President of Venezuela's National Assembly since January 5th, Juan Guaido, declared that he has temporarily assumed presidential powers, promising to hold free elections and end Nicolas Maduro's, quote, dictatorship. President Trump announced that the U.S. would recognize Juan Guaido as the legitimate president of Venezuela. According to the Wall Street Journal, Vice President Mike Pence called Guaido the night before his announcement and pledged that the Trump administration would support him. Trump refused to rule out military action. In your recent article, Regime Change and Speakers of the Legislature, Nancy Pelosi versus Juan Guaido, self-proclaimed president of Venezuela, you intimate that Trump's declaration might constitute a dangerous precedent for him. Why? Well, ironically, the position of Speaker of the National Assembly of Venezuela, which is held by Juan Guaido, is in some regards comparable to that of the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives and, of course, the leader of the majority party, the Democrats, which is currently held by Nancy Pelosi. Uh, I mean, there's certain differences uh, from the constitutional standpoint, but what President Trump has intimated in, uh, in uh, declaring that the Speaker of the House of the National Assembly of Venezuela is the interim president of Venezuela uh, is tantamount to saying, hey, Donald Trump, what about Nancy Pelosi? Somebody might intimate either a U.S. politician or in, including perhaps even President Maduro of Venezuela, we would like Nancy Pelosi to be the president of the United States. And then, of course, we'll go to the UN Security Council to have it endorsed. That's, that illustrates the, the ridicule of political discourse 
but also the the sheer fantasy of U.S. foreign policy that they should provide legitimacy to a Speaker of the House because they don't like the president. Well, I don't like the president of the United States of America, and, and a lot of people don't like him, but do we want to have Nancy Pelosi as our interim president? That, in fact, is something which could evolve in the current context of confrontation between President Trump and the Democratic Party, which now controls the U.S. House of Representatives. It looks like the Democrats in Congress are also threatening President Maduro. The House Foreign Affairs Committee has tweeted out, quote, we refuse to recognize the legitimacy of Maduro's presidency. That's why members are joining to introduce legislation to support the people of Venezuela and hold the illegitimate president accountable for the crisis he created. So this is a bipartisan effort to unseat Maduro. Well, precisely. Well, it, it, it is uh, a novelty in in relation to regime change. I mean, we've had, we have military coups going back, in Venezuela, going back to the early uh, 20th century, the whole bunch of military coups. We have color revolutions um, which uh, instigate protest movements. That, in fact, is already ongoing in, in Venezuela. And then we have this new formula of intimating that we don't like the president, have him replaced by the Speaker of the House. And that's, of course, a very dangerous discourse, because, as I mentioned, it could backlash on President Trump himself. Venezuela's crisis came before the U.N. Security Council on Saturday, but they took no action because there was no agreement. Russia and China backed Maduro, but France, Britain, Spain, and Germany said they would recognize Juan Guaido as president unless Venezuela calls a new presidential election within eight days. So here we have European nations demanding that Venezuela hold another election. Did Nicolas Maduro win the presidency of Venezuela democratically or not? Well, he won the, the presidency of Venezuela democratically with a large majority. Conversely, um, President Macron also won the presidential election with a rather feeble majority. Uh, nobody is questioning uh, Macron's uh, presidency. Well, in fact, some people are because we have the Yellow Vest movement throughout France. And uh, that doesn't seem to be making the headlines anymore. And people are endorsing President Macron. Uh, well, there are several issues. The, these European leaders don't have the support of their of their respective populations. Um, in Venezuela, support for President Maduro is, is divided, but that's, I think, something that happens in a large number of countries. It's, it's not any different. The, the opposition is controlling the National Assembly, but nonetheless, President Maduro gets a majority of support of the Venezuelan population. 
the fact of the matter that all these leaders in, in Europe, are, first of all, they're caving into U.S. foreign policy. Uh, they are essentially behaving as U.S. proxies. And at the same time, their behavior and management of the republics that they represent, not including the United Kingdom, which is also in a big mess, well, one might say, how, how can they get away with this? How can they, under constitutional democracy, how is it that they could actually support the United States in calling for the Speaker of the National Assembly of Venezuela to become president of the country. It's an absurd proposition. And that this would then get to the United Nations Security Council is even more absurd. What should get to the United Nations Security Council is the, the mode of, of uh, interference in, in uh, the internal affairs of a sovereign country uh, through the financing of... of uh, uh, of opposition groups, uh, the, the financing of, uh, of terrorists and, and, and so on, who are involved in triggering uh, the protest movement and so on. It's an evolving situation. It has certain features resembling, in fact, the Euromaidan in Ukraine. And, uh, and of course, the end objective is to unseat the, the president. Now, he has a very strong grassroots support because the, the Bolivaran revolution has indeed um, led to major changes uh, in the country, major achievements under very contradictory circumstances as well as divisions within the Bolivaran movement. I, I have... Um, been going back and forth to Venezuela for, for a long, very long period since I started um, very early in my career when I became advisor to the Minister of Planning in the Carlos Andres Perez government of the, of the mid-70s. Um, I, I know the country inside out. Um, it's a very complex process. But I think people have to understand, first of all, that Venezuela has the largest oil reserves worldwide, more than Saudi Arabia, uh, both traditional crude as well as tar sands, which are extensive but also very easy to, to manage and produce compared to those of Canada, for instance. And um, what is at stake there is the battle for oil. Uh, historically, Venezuela has been an oil colony from its inception in 1918 when oil was discovered in the Maracaibo Bay. And then you had a whole series of, of military dictators. Uh, the most prominent was, of course, Juan Vicente Gomez, who was really a, a, a proxy of the United States and big oil. Okay? So big oil has controlled this country from the early 20th century, and it was only in the 90s with the Bolivaran Revolution that they actually started to, to repeal this, this control of, of big oil with the government of Chavez, which essentially started to implement some major changes and shifts in, in the nature of, of um, state management, but under very contradictory circumstances, which 
I guess we'll be discussing. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, Venezuela, from oil proxy to the Bolivarian movement and sabotage. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, how did you first get involved in Venezuela? Now, you say, did you first go there in 1975, and under what auspices? Well, you know, I actually, one of my close friends, when I was studying uh, in Manchester, at the University of Manchester in economics, was a person named Gomercindo Rodriguez. Now, Gomacindo Rodriguez was active. He was a bit older than I. He was active in the, in the MIR, Movimiento Izquierda Revolucionaria, which was sort of a leftist faction of the, of the Democratic Action Party, Acción Democrática. Um, he, um, he had close links to, the, to uh, one of the prominent presidents, which was Romulo Betancourt, but at the same time, he was, to some extent, the, the Mir were considered as renegades. He went off to study in the UK, and then when he returned and a new Acción Democrática government was formed, he became Minister of Planning. And, and then he called me up, and we met in, in New York, and he said, would you like to come down, etc., to Caracas uh, to work for the, you know, the planning ministry as, as my advisor. Uh, and I, I accepted. And um, I went down in um, mid-1975 uh, uh, during the school break at the, at the University of Ottawa. And uh, initially, he, he wanted me to, to write his speeches. So... <laughs> I started writing his speeches, and then after a while I said, listen, Gubercindo, I would like to do something more substantive and set up a research group on poverty in this country, which is a serious issue. So he, he said, okay, uh, Michel, go ahead. Um, set up the group. You have all the resources you need. And I set up a group of about um, half a dozen people with consultants at the university and so on. I was a young researcher. It was a very challenging um, project. And we very carefully, we, we looked at concepts of, of what defines the standard of living. In other words, nutrition, education, health, uh, employment, income distribution, the environment, uh, the access to, to running water, the levels of malnutrition. We defined um, what was called a minimum family income, and this was supported with very careful analysis at the statistical level. I had a professor in nutrition at the university who advised me on, on, on various aspects. We came up, this report was done in three months. It was a big push, and I, I had to go back to Ottawa, uh, to the university in September. So we managed to finish the first draft of the report in a matter of months. And um, we came up with incredible results. 
that the, the levels of poverty, the abysmal levels of poverty, largely basing, basing our analysis on national statistics, the, the various surveys which were, were available, household budget surveys, and the census data, and also the input of, of a, a large number of intellectuals, and, and so on, and, but not so much field work because simply we didn't really have the time to do that. But we came up with, with results, but I think concretely also we, we understood that poverty was not the result of a scarcity of resources because this was an oil-producing economy. But all the, the oil revenues were going into private hands. Of course, the, the big oil U.S. was behind it. But um, what we understood was that it was the, the governments which were responsible for poverty because they weren't recycling the oil revenues to a societal project. They weren't using the oil revenues to finance education, health, uh, and so on. And uh, the levels of unemployment were exceedingly high, and so on. Now, this is the background of poverty which prevailed when the Bolivaran Revolution occurred. And I should mention that much of our, our data was based on the 1970s, but the 1980s were far worse because then you had what was called the Caracaso in 1989, which was the, was the collapse. Uh, it was instigated by the IMF. Uh, it led to hyperinflation. So it was a, a sort of classical uh, neoliberal uh, intervention with strong economic medicine where the prices of consumer goods go fly high. That happened in 89. Now, what I think is very important to to underscore is that Venezuela in the 1970s and 80s was a very poor country with a lot of resources, namely oil, and that oil went into private hands. And that was despite the, the fact that the oil industry was nationalized in 1975. Now, I should mention that when I arrived at the Ministry of Planning in 1975, that coincided more or less uh, with the nationalization of the oil uh, industry. But it was a fake nationalization. How do you mean a fake na nationalization? Well, it was, it was legally, it was nationalization, but it was ultimately understood that the, oil, the, the big oil companies were complicit in this nationalization and that they would get all the benefits and so on. And they were also, when it was nationalized, well, they, they were, of course, there were payments to the, to the oil companies. Uh, it was implemented by the government of Carlos Andres Perez, and, um, and there was no question of actually saying, well, we've got the oil, what are we going to do with it? Okay? The, the pattern of, of, uh, of appropriation continued, the corruption within the state apparatus, and so on. Um, ironically, I was uh, asked to draft a text uh, which was to be used um, for the nationalization speech, which was essentially which was a very important document because it, it, it defined what are you going to do with the oil, okay? And I, 
I drafted, I drafted uh, an analysis of this, essentially saying the following, that the oil revenues um, would be recycled to a societal project of uh, alleviating poverty. But it was explained conceptually that, you know, that the oil money now it belongs to the country and not to the oil companies. And consequently, this is, this is the avenue that we choose. Um, there was a drafting committee and they, well, they contacted me. I knew all these people, you know, they were on the same floor in, in, the, in the Ministry of Planning building. Um, but then, uh, then uh, the, the nationalization speech was, was, was published, was read and published, and it was simply political rhetoric. It, it didn't have any substantive perspective as to how these oil revenues would be used to improve the livelihood of, of, the, of the Venezuelan people. And that is something which Chavez actually formulated many years later. Uh, the Bolivarian Revolution said, yes, the oil is going to improve the conditions of, of the Venezuelan population, and particularly the, the, the people who are below the poverty line. Now, I should mention, and that's so important, we... we undertook uh, an estimate of undernourishment, people who do not meet minimum and calorie requirements. And we arrived at figures in excess of 70% of the Venezuelan population. That was part of, my, of, of the report which I submitted to the government at the time. I contacted my, uh, my friend at at the um, university was specialized in nutrition. I said, this seems to be horrendously high. And his response, he said, no, you're absolutely on. Your, your estimates are, uh, on the whole, conservative. And um, he, he had focused also on the impacts on child malnutrition and so on. We had estimates of that as well from secondary sources. But that was the picture which existed in mid-70s in, in Venezuela, uh, an exceedingly poor country with tremendous wealth. And that tremendous wealth, of course, was being appropriated. And um, the elites in Venezuela were, of course, complicit in, in the, the role of the, of the oil companies and the United States. The Rockefellers were involved. Um, I knew about this because I, I was also very close to the Minister of Planning. Okay? Now, what happened to our report, and that's very important, <laughs> um, we, we submitted the report. Uh, I went back to Canada, and my, my colleagues submitted the report to, to the Minister. Or, in fact, what happened is the moment I had instructed the my colleague to to have copies made of the report and to circulate this report within the ministries and um, immediately upon having the photocopied 20 or 30 copies of the report the the driver of the of the minister of planning who was a very powerful figure came in and confiscated everything okay they confiscated everything then the team was dismissed and um, 
And then when I returned to uh, Caracas uh, in early 76, I, had an, I still had an office, but I was all by myself. And, and, and in fact, I had absolutely no, absolutely no functions or activities assigned to me. My team had been dispersed. They were still there. We still spoke, but we, we were not working as a, as a team anymore. And what has happened is first, that report was was uh, confiscated by the Minister of Planning, and then it was, it was shelved by the Council of Ministers of the Carlos Andres Perez government. The, the Council of Ministers uh, reviewed it and said, no, we don't want it. And the reason they didn't want it wasn't the figures on poverty. It was how we analyze the role of the state. And the role of the state creates poverty. Mind you, we have the same thing in the United States of America. Okay, the state creates poverty. Why? Because it spends more than $700 billion on, on defense, so-called defense. So, I mean, we have that logic, but it was very clear that that kind of, of analysis could not go public. It couldn't go public. And it was only a couple of years later that I took the report and I brought it out as a book it was published in 1978, and it became uh, an immediate bestseller. The first edition was sold out in nine days. Uh, it was adopted at the colleges and universities and high schools across Venezuela, uh, and it broke because it broke a myth. It broke the myth of what they call La Venezuela Millonaria, that, that this was a rich country, the Saudi sort of the Latin Saudi Arabia, so to speak. But the, the realities, the social realities were otherwise. And now when we, we look at what's happening in, in, in Venezuela today and where the U.S. policymakers say, oh, we, you know, uh, we want to come to the rescue of the, the people who have been impoverished, this is a, I mean, this is a nonsensical statement. The history of Venezuela was a history of poverty right until Chavez uh, became president. They retained that level of, of poverty and, and exclusion. Uh, not to say that there aren't very serious contradictions within the Bolivarian movement. That's another issue. And I think that we have to assess what Venezuela was historically starting with the dictatorships uh, throughout. The, the last dictatorship was, was repealed in 1958. Uh, that was the dictatorship of Perez Jimenez. But then you had a sort of bipartisan framework between what was called the Acción Democrática, Democratic Action, and COPE, which were the Christian, the, the Christian Democrats. It was a bipartisan structure very similar to that of the United States, going from one to the other and largely, largely serving the interests of, of the elites rather than the broader population. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, Venezuela, from oil proxy to the Bolivarian movement and sabotage. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, you have said that 
Uh, Venezuela in 1918, basically, when oil was discovered, it, it became an oil colony. What was Venezuela like before oil was discovered? Do you have any idea? Well, it was essentially uh, an agrarian society which was uh, dominated by landlords. Uh, there were regional powers, um, what in Latin America I call uh, los caudillos. Uh, in other words, these were essentially landlords and leaders in various regions of Venezuela. And it was largely uh, an agrarian society producing coffee and cacao. And in fact, they would say if somebody becomes a, a landlord, a big landlord, or, or a or a caldillo, they will call him a gran cacao, okay? which indicated that cacao was a, it was a cash, you could say it's a sort of cash crop economy, exporting, uh, exporting coffee and cacao to the Western markets, uh, very similar to what we, had in, what we have in Central America, for instance. Of course, it, it, had, it still had the legacy of Bolivar and Caracas, uh, uh, an, an urban society, which, you know, which goes back to the Spanish colonies. But um, it, it didn't really have any particular momentum in terms of, of uh, wealth formation until the emergence of oil in 1918. Uh, and that is when the, the U.S. big oil became involved in Venezuela. And it was, it was essentially an oil colony of the United States and a very important oil colony of the United States, due to geography as well, because it's, it's not in the Middle East, it's right there, very close to the United States. So that was really ultimately the transition, and that's where we saw, first of all, we saw the, more the centralization of political power within the country, and the development of an elite which was serving the interests of the, of the oil companies. But then, even before oil was discovered in 1918, Venezuela was still controlled by elites. Was there crushing poverty then as well? Well, there was certainly crushing poverty during that period. Um, but what I'm, uh, I'm suggesting there is that that crushing poverty was not alleviated with the, you know, with the discovery of oil. What, what happened is that the discovery of oil created... First of all, it created conditions of displacement of, of the agrarian uh, economy. Okay? Um, agricultural production started to decline dramatically, and uh, oil became uh, essentially the sole industry in, in, in the country. There has been, there was during the Bolivaran period, concern that the rural economy has been, had been more or less abandoned. And, and that was also the, the, the consequence of, of big oil. So then in 1992, Hugo Chavez stages a coup d'etat. Could you talk about Venezuela under Hugo Chavez? Now, you met him personally, haven't you? Yes, I, I met him um, uh, personally rather briefly um, when I uh, attended... Uh, the sessions of the of the Latin American Parliament. Uh, 
I think what was uh, striking is that, well, first of all, he uh, he acknowledged the the report that we published, well, which I published as a book uh, uh, entitled in Spanish La Miseria en Venezuela, and uh, he also intimated he would like me to get involved in uh, an update of that. Well, it wouldn't be an update, uh, a contemporary review of poverty so that we could actually compare poverty in the 1970s to poverty in the early 2000s. That um, proposal was discussed, but it never really got off the ground. Uh, but had I been involved in, in doing a, a new poverty analysis, it, of course, would have been done in a very, very different way to what we, we did in, in the 1970s. But I thought that I still think that that analysis has to be made. Uh, the historical levels of poverty uh, are there. And... Uh, I had the opportunity of undertaking this study and releasing that that information to the broader public in in Venezuela. And as I mentioned, that that destroyed a myth, uh, the narrative that Venezuela, in relation to other countries in Latin America, was a rich country. It wasn't a rich country. It was a country with tremendous wealth and a poor population with serious uh, social divisions uh, and high levels of inequality. And that is what U.S. foreign policy wants to restore. They want to restore, they want to restore Venezuela as a subordinate country with a poor population and elites that are aligned with the United States. And uh, that is the nature of the crisis which is ongoing today in, in Venezuela. Well, now, how would you assess the effect, uh, the effect that uh, Hugo Chavez and his government had on Venezuela? Well, you know, this is a very complex process because... Um, when when Chavez um, arrived to power, initially his first um, presidency was was in 1999. Right, he he became um, he became president in 1999, and then um, he um, he continued again in 2007 until his death in 2013. The the nature of the Venezuelan state apparatus was such that it was very difficult to start implementing reforms within the state apparatus. I knew that from the very beginning when I when I started to uh, put to, when I put together the the team of people. I had a representative from the from the Ministry of Health, and it turned out that she was sustaining essentially the, you know, an elitist vision of, of health. And uh, eventually I asked her to, to withdraw from, from, the, from the research group. And, and what Hugo Chavez inherited was a, a, a structure of government 
which um, was very much still centered on, on the previous periods and required tremendous reform. It, you couldn't simply go in and start instructing the officials to do this and that. Uh, there had to be a major reform of the state apparatus. Now, what he did instead was to create projects which were parallel to the state system. Those were called the misiones, and they had also sort of grassroots. So there was a gradual process of reform of the state apparatus, and at the same time there were activities which were grassroots, which took place outside the realm of of, uh, let's say, of ministerial politics. And uh, they were geared towards, uh, you know, uh, literacy, um, education, uh, health. They had tremendous support also from the Cuban doctors. And these were, in, in, in some regards, these were very successful undertakings. I should mention, from my own understanding, is that there were serious divisions within the a Bolivaran movement, um, and um, and I think also mistakes from the point of view of, uh, of uh, mistakes as far as Chavez is concerned. From my standpoint, one of the biggest mistakes was to have, um, at an earlier period, created uh, a united socialist party rather than a, a coalition. In other words. The, the intent of Chavez was to create a political party which would then become, it would be the, the United Socialist Party uh, of Venezuela, uh, of, which he was, of which he was also the leader, rather than create a, a coalition of parties which, uh, which would gather different segments of, of Venezuelan society. So the thing became very polarized. And there were, I, I should say there were divisions within the Chavista movement. There was also corruption within the Chavista movement. It was very difficult for, for the state to disassociate itself with the, with the Venezuelan lobby groups, which were the rich families of, of, of Venezuela. Uh, but nonetheless, the results of this um, process were historically significant because uh, first of all, the oil industry was already nationalized by, well, it was nationalized by Carlos Andres Perez, but it was never really applied as a national entity. And what Chavez did was essentially to render this nationalization of petroleum uh, as an active element in the recycling of revenue to uh, to social projects rather than to private appropriation. And that, is, of course, was ongoing. And the country had the resources to, to undertake these, these projects. So that, uh, that, is, uh, that is, is the background. Uh, I should mention that, and that's a separate issue, that there was already attempts to destabilize uh, Chavez from the presidency right from the outset. And it came uh, as a result of the, the interference, well, it came as a result of the National Endowment for Democracy and its various actions in Venezuela in support of uh, so-called opposition groups. I, I recall again, and I, I should mention it, uh, 
that in, in the 2012 elections, which uh, Chavez won, uh, there was an attempt by various foundations, the NED, but also Germany's, uh, uh, Germany's Hans Seidel Foundation to support the opposition candidate. And so there was direct interference in, in the electoral process. So were you saying that one of the ways that Hugo Chavez tried to implement reform was not through reforming the government itself, but by creating a a, a sort of a parallel structure? Is that what you were saying? Yes, that was that was certainly what occurred. I, I mean, the parallel reforms were taking place within the state apparatus, and the parallel structures were also there. And eventually, they and they were also linked up. But um, at the outset, it was very difficult for for the the new uh, government to come in and and introduce uh, you know major reforms in the state apparatus. They then had a process of constitutional reform, uh, which, uh, which uh, Chavez uh, implemented, and uh, they, they created uh, a constitutional assembly, which was the object of, uh, of controversy. I mean, we're dealing with a very complex process, because throughout, uh, throughout his presidency, up to his death, there were uh, conspiracies to destabilize the government, and there were people within the government who were playing a dirty game. Uh, I think that was clear. And in fact, even to some extent, Chavez let that happen. There, there, was, there were contracts allocated you know, by the ministry with the Ministry of Public Works and so on. There were various cases of corruption within within the Bolivaran government. And there were, there were serious problems as far as the, the structure of, of the state apparatus is concerned. But uh, it's not to say that this was not known, but at the same time, there was a grassroots movement. There was a process of democratization at the grassroots. I think that what was achieved was remarkable within a relatively short period of time the historical levels of poverty were, were alleviated. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, Venezuela, from oil proxy to the Bolivarian movement and sabotage. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, it sounds like corruption played a very big part in Venezuela before Hugo Chavez's coup d'etat and after his coup d'etat when he got in charge. Now, many people are claiming that Venezuela's economic collapse presently is linked to its socialist policies. What are Venezuela's socialist policies, and what do you make of this claim? Well, you know, I think that's a little bit of a, of a misnomer because, first of all, Venezuela was not a socialist economy. It, it was essentially a capitalist economy. Uh, what happened is that, that the government nationalized certain key industries 
It created what were called the communal councils. Uh, it had the, the misiones, uh, which, uh, which were largely um, focusing on issues of housing, healthcare, and so on. Uh, but the, the, the economy was essentially a capitalist economy. It was a market economy. I mean, if you go to Caracas, you see it. And uh, I think there was a socialist process which had been implemented. But by no means was this a, was this a, a full-fledged socialist economy. And um, I think if, if we look at, if we compare it to other Latin American countries, Venezuela, in a sense, would divorce itself from the so-called Washington consensus, namely the economic and social policies imposed by the Bretton Woods institutions, e.g. World Bank, uh, International Monetary Fund. It had its own structures of participatory democracy, uh, which were, in some regards, quite, quite successful, uh, uh, particularly the Misiones. But it, in, in fact, the, the failures that we're now uh, seeing with rising, we, we see rising consumer prices, hyperinflation, those are engineered. Those are engineered. It's, they're engineered by, uh, by uh, manipulations of the foreign exchange market. We know this kind of, of mechanism because it's, it's what characterized the last months of the, of the Chilean government uh, of uh, Salvador Allende in 1973, where persistently the, the national currency was under attack, uh, leading to hyperinflation and so on and so forth. We might say that it's part of the IMF, World Bank, Federal Reserve um, remedy, you know, or, or action. Uh, it's very easy for, for Wall Street to destabilize currencies. It's been applied in many, many countries. I, I recall when I was in Peru, that was in the early 90s when President Fujimori came to power, that in a single day, the price of fuel went up 30 times and that was following the IMF measures. Well, in, in the case of Venezuela, the, the manipulation is ongoing. The exchange rate is manipulated, and it is triggering poverty. There's no question about it that these acts of sabotage and financial warfare are creating abysmal poverty. But that was not the result of a government policy. It was the result of intervention in the currency markets by speculators. And this is something which is well known and understood. You want to destroy a country, you destroy its currency. And I should mention that I've had meetings with people at the Central Bank, not recently, but when I went to, to Venezuela some seven, eight years ago, I had those um, meetings at the Central Bank. The Central Bank of Venezuela did not really implement significant changes in the management of monetary policy, which would avert this kind of action. But what I can say quite rightly is that if there's poverty today in Venezuela, it is not due to the Bolivaran revolution. It is due to the fact that there are measures of sabotage and financial warfare which have been introduced with the view to undermining the Bolivaran missions 
in health, housing, and, and so on, simply by manipulating the currency markets. And that generates hyperinflation. How exactly does Wall Street attack a nation's currency? Now, what about the currency in Venezuela? Is it what you have referred to as a dollarized economy or not? I think it is a dollarized economy. And that even prevailed before Chavez arrived to power. In, in other words, there's a dual currency system. And uh, there's, there's the Bolivar on the one hand, the national currency and the dollar. And, um, and there's a black market. And when there's a black market which is unregulated, they never really manage to regulate the black market. Uh, when it's unregulated, well, that's what happens. People save in dollars because the national currency is, is very unstable and so on. I think there were failures on the part of the central bank of, of Venezuela to, to ultimately come to terms with this issue. And one of the reasons for that is that many of the people who were there, whom I knew, uh, were uh, of the old guard. You know, they're trained in, in monetary policy and macroeconomics. And there, there was a need for some very careful reforms within the monetary system and mechanisms to protect the currency. That was fundamental. Now, there's also another element which, which played a role, and that was the, the collapse of, of the oil market. That's, that's clear. The fact that the oil prices are exceedingly low, well, that backlash is on oil-producing countries, but that, that also affected other countries. But, um, and that oil collapse was manipulated, correct? The oil collapse was, was manipulated. Yes, I think the oil collapse was manipulated. Their mechanisms, I don't want to get into that because it's, it's rather technical, but there are mechanisms for pushing prices of commodities up or down through speculative actions on the commodity exchanges. It's well known and understood. There are ways of pushing currencies up and down through speculative actions. We know that from the Asian crisis, how the Korean won collapsed. Those mechanisms are there. In economic jargon, we call that naked short selling. Okay? And when you introduce a naked short selling operation against the currency, it collapses. But there are ways for governments to actually avoid this short selling of their currencies. They have to regulate the currency market. And unfortunately, in, in Venezuela, that did not take place. And some proposals were put forth, but they were never effective in, in, in protecting the currency. Now, I've read that Venezuela is in debt to the tune of $60 billion. Does that debt have to be repaid in uh, dollars? I presume that that is a dollar debt, yes. It's an external debt. So then the only way... How would they earn the dollars? By selling the oil? Well, they sell the oil. I mind you that $60 billion of external debt uh, is not unduly high uh, when you have oil revenues. Uh, but I expect that that debt was also accumulated with the collapse of the oil market. Uh, but, uh, of course, yes, their debt servicing obligations uh, to repay that debt 
of course, if, if there are problems of debt repayment, well, then the creditors can implement measures which are detrimental to, to the Venezuelan economy, and they're doing it. Uh, there are a whole series of acts of sabotage. Now, just recently, we see that the, the Bank of England has said, no, you can't repatriate the gold that you have deposited in the Bank of England. They had gold deposited in the Bank of England, which belongs to Venezuela. And uh, the response of the Bank of England said, no, you can't, you can't, uh, you can't have it back. Now, that's another act of, 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 uh, of sabotage. It looks like Citco, Venezuela's main foreign energy asset, could be a target of the overthrow of Maduro, with the money from oil exports being sent to Guaido instead of the Maduro government. I read that John Bolton was setting uh, that out as a priority. Yeah, well, this is um, something which... um could have devastating consequences, but I don't see, first of all, there are institutional mechanisms as to how uh, Guaido would actually take control of these revenues. He's not a government, he, he's an individual, but um, I think that what they're doing now is to, to engineer mechanisms which will further uh, destabilize the Venezuelan economy and also um, trigger some form of regime change. Now, um, there's another thing I'd like to to mention, which I think is very important. What has been the response to this crisis? I saw recently a statement by a number of progressive authors, and it essentially says that there should be mediation or negotiation between both sides. I think that that uh, is something which is rather much misunderstood. Uh, there cannot be mediation between the government of Venezuela and a proxy for U.S. intelligence, which is Guaido. In other words, what is being proposed is essentially to have a negotiated settlement between both sides, between the interim president Juan Guaido and the president of Venezuela, Maduro. And In fact, Maduro has fallen for that proposal and has had, I think, some discussions with Guaido, or has said he, he's open to having conversations with him. And I think it should be obvious that this proposal is redundant and contradictory because the leader of the National Assembly, Juan Guaido, is a U.S. proxy. He's an instrument of, of, uh, of a foreign government who will then be negotiating on behalf of Washington. So now, there's always been negotiation within the Bolivarian process with opposition groups. They've always negotiated and discussed. But here we're dealing with something which is quite specific. You can't negotiate with Juan Guaido. Okay? He's a U.S. proxy. And you can't negotiate with the U.S. government. Well, there, there are internal divisions within Venezuela. But the, the president of Venezuela cannot negotiate uh, with individuals who are committed to overthrowing the constitutionally elected president and replacing him by the Speaker of the House. I think, let's say, in Western countries, we have to certainly take a stance and simply reject this opening by, by our governments, which are supporting, they're supporting the Speaker of the House uh, and portraying him as an interim president of Venezuela. That's, what, that's the stance that we have to take.
And there's certainly avenues of debate and negotiation within Venezuela, but it is very difficult for that to occur with a country which is under attack, which is the result of sabotage, uh, financial warfare in the currency markets, threats to confiscate the revenues accruing from their oil exports, freezing the, the gold reserves in the Bank of England or freezing the counts of assets overseas and so on. That is what has to stop. And then there may be a period of transition where, where the country can restore its activities of normal government. Michel Chosodovsky, thank you. Thank you. Delighted to be on the program. Our thoughts today are with the people of Venezuela. I've been speaking with Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show has been Venezuela, from oil proxy to the Bolivarian movement and sabotage. Michel Chosodovsky is the founder, director, and editor of the Center for Research on Globalization, based in Montreal, Quebec. The Global Research website, globalresearch.ca, publishes news articles, commentary, background research, and analysis. Michel Chosodovsky is the author of 11 books, including The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, and War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th. Visit globalresearch.ca. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaramako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at G&B Radio.